Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm Craig Pickett. Hey, today we've got Kevin Michaels, Managing Director of Aerodynamic Advisory. Kevin is a long-term industry player and a current advisor to Tier 1, Tier 2 OEMs, suppliers, MROs, and private equity groups, and one of the most uh, educated executives I've ever met with regards to aerospace matters. Hey, Kevin, how are you? Thank you, Craig. Looking forward to today. Well, good stuff. Uh, I enjoy, as I was saying earlier, I really enjoy reading your uh, your information on uh, your, your your posts uh, in Aviation Week, and you've got one of the most unique perspectives um, in the industry. Um, obviously, the industry right now is the big news is all the mega mergers, and what's you know, what's going on there? What how's that going to impact? Uh, how's that going to impact everybody? Well, just this week, uh, the uh, European Commission approved um, United Technologies Rockwell Collins, which is a $30 billion merger and effectively puts together the largest system supplier with the largest avionics supplier. So that's uh, th- that's pretty uh, earth-shattering uh, in my view. And it comes on the heels of a series of uh, consolidations that took place really over the last couple of years in systems. Uh, Rockwell Collins bought BE Aerospace, one of the largest interior suppliers, and they in turn get swallowed. Uh, Saffron earlier this year, which is really the European equivalent of United Technologies Aerospace Systems, the largest European system supplier, um, bought Zodiac, which is a major interior and aircraft system supplier. So right now we have, uh, we have really some large behemoths. Uh, in the new United Technologies, which is which will have thirty-eight billion dollars of aerospace revenue, you know, to put this in perspective, it's uh, it's nipping at the heels of Airbus in terms of what they do in commercial aerospace in terms of size, and then a, a very large um, Safran as well. Should we be scared? I mean, when I think about the when I think about the power that these mergers give companies to bundle their products in airframes and new programs. Um, it's a pretty powerful statement. Is it something we should be scared of? Something we should be, you know, uh, embracing? What's, uh, how's it going to affect us all? I think there's mixed implications. I think, first of all, on the bundling side, I don't see that risk because the, uh, the aircraft OEM set the rules for, their systems and for their uh, work packages. And the aircraft OEMs are actually moving in a direction right now that is away from the large mega system contracts of the sort we had on the 787. They're actually moving to unbundle the systems and uh, create smaller work packages around components and subsystems. So I think the notion that a UTC can say to an aircraft OEM that, hey, uh, I, you know, I, I have these avionics and I have this landing system and, and this, these other components, and I, I'm going to sell them all to you. I just don't think that that um, works in today's world, uh, and it hasn't worked really. Um, but what it does give them the ability to do, it gives them the ability to walk away from bad deals. Uh, they're bidding on a program, an aircraft program, like any aircraft program, there will be some uh, parts of it that will be more attractive than others. You know, every work package is not a must win. Whereas if you're a smaller, more focused, uh, uh, manufacturer or supplier, maybe that program is a must win. So it lets them be a little bit more selective. I think what, uh, what, what airlines worry about is what will happen to product support, customer support if you have a huge, uh, you know, uh, conglomerate. 
And I think the trick for UTC and for Saffron and others is they're going to have to be agile giants. In other words, I think they're going to have to organize in a way where they can still be responsive to customers without dealing with, uh, you know, a, a large behemoth. Really organizing into system and component groups, you know, rather than a one eight hundred, you know, one eight hundred giant uh, telephone number that you call. So, what about Boeing? I mean, Boeing, uh, you know, know, emailing Stan Deal at Boeing Global Services, and I was like, "Hey, sixty billion dollars is a big number. Um, Can they do what they can they can they get there?" Oh, so you're referring to the Boeing, what I call the Boeing BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> there uh, you go. Uh, yeah, to, to paraphrase Jim Collins, but to get to $50 billion of services revenue, that's combining civil and military by the year. Well, they don't really have a year, but they're saying fairly soon. So I'm assuming it's inside of 10 years, something like that. Right. Today, um, they're sitting around $14 billion. They now disclose what their services revenue is. Can they get to 50 I think the, uh, the answer is probably not, um, but that may not be the purpose of the goal. I think the purpose of the BHAG is to really shake the culture, sh- shake up the culture, reshape the thinking, reshape the expectations of Boeing um, so that they can get out of their comfort zone. Uh, and become more creative. And, uh, you know, they just announced uh, an acquisition of KLX, um, actually in the, in the last week or so. Uh, and this is a distributor of, uh, fastener standards, bearings and the like. Mm-hmm. And that's all contributing to their, their services revenue. But to answer your question, I think to get the 50 billion is probably not possible in the next 10 years because they will have to, it's just where the money is. And they're going to have to move into areas like engine overhaul and other areas that are not necessarily core competencies for Boeing. So we'll, time will tell, but I don't think they'll get there. Uh, but I do think uh, they will grow significantly and reshape the MRO sector as we know it. Yeah, so I mean, you know, Boeing's been out there. You know, Boeing's been out there, and they are, um, yeah, they're obviously irritated that a lot of their suppliers are making more money than they are, and so now they're, you know, it's pretty well documented, and you know, it's pretty well documented on the trade rags and things like you know, things of the sort that uh, you know they want this partnering for success, and basically, hey, look, we want, we're going to squeeze you to help our top line. Is that a, is that the right strategy? Shouldn't they be worried more about their own house and making sure that you know they're as efficient as possible for, before they start beating everybody else up? Well, I think Boeing, as I look at Boeing um, or Airbus for that matter, I think uh, that it is it is right that they should um, they should be striving higher. You know, they are, after all, in a duopoly in an industry with enormous entry barriers and incredible complexity where there is eight years of demand for the aircraft, eight years of backlog. So mm-hmm. to strive and say we can do better than nine or 10 percent in commercial you know, aircraft and strive for mid-teens, I think, is the right thing to do. Uh, as uh, if I were a shareholder, I would feel that way. Now, I think what Boeing is doing is they are really changing the rule book that, as we've known it to pursue this goal. And they are doing, I think, in my mind, they have three or four big initiatives going on, you know, beyond partnering for success. I mean, number one, they are pursuing productivity and digital in a significant way in their operations. Uh, they have big plans for the NMA and believe that digital can make them just fundamentally more productive in manufacturing. Number two, they've actually been creating internal competition within Boeing for the activities they perform in-house. So, you know, at one time for commercial, it was all in Puget Sound pretty much, very heavily concentrated there. Now they're creating centers of excellence in different parts of the country and in other parts of the world for uh, technical expertise. 
They've obviously added Charleston now. So when we come up to the NMA uh, negotiations in terms of where it will be built, uh, they certainly have a different uh, amount of leverage against organized labor than they might have before when they were all in Puget Sound, you know, with the exception of what they did in uh, California. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're also, you know, the, to get to this 15% goal, the aftermarket services is a big part of it. Why do suppliers earn more than Boeing? The number one reason, I would say, is that a typical component or engine supplier might derive 40 to 50% of their revenue from the aftermarket, and aftermarket revenue is more profitable. If you're an aircraft OEM making mostly structural parts, those are the parts where you own the intellectual property, they tend not to generate a lot of aftermarket activity. So the aftermarket revenue of a typical aircraft OEM is less than 10% usually, unless they grow into adjacent areas. So they're trying to grow that. And then along with that, they are changing the rule book on suppliers with partnering for success. Uh, I So what do I think about partnering for success? And they're now in partnering for success 2.0. I think that uh, they are right to put more pressure on their suppliers, but I think they've got to be, they have a very difficult channel to navigate here. On one hand, they cannot lose these partners that have been there through all these decades that have unique IP and capabilities that they're going to need on the next aircraft. Um, so Boeing's got to be careful about how they treat them in negotiations and even where Boeing chooses to vertically integrate, which has been something Boeing has been doing, you know, and by the same token, um, you know, they're implying, employing more automotive style supply chain practices that can go, that can go horribly wrong if it's promulgated in the wrong way. Uh, the example I like to cite, um, although it's not the aerospace industry is the automotive industry and, um, GM did something similar in the nineties with a purchasing chief by the name of uh, Jose Ignacio Lopez. And he went on a uh, really an aggressive campaign with suppliers where it was all about price. And he ultimately ended up really cratering GM's supply chain and putting them years behind their competition, like Toyota, who took a longer-term view and a more partnership uh, orientation with their suppliers. So I think that's what Boeing has got to really be careful about. That's the other side of this. Are they right to ask for concessions? Yes. Um, but do they need to be very, very careful in what they do here? Absolutely. Yep. So you know, let's let's expand it a little past a little past Boeing. Um, yeah, you've got the the three engine manufacturers, UTC, obviously Pratt, Rolls, and GE. And those guys, you know, Rolls is notorious for for locking up its aftermarket. GE has done a pretty good job of creating you know, power by hour agreements and controlling it to some degree. And then you've got you know UTC, which you know we'll see with the gear with the uh, with the gear turbofan. Um, you know, is there going to be room for third parties to play in ten years? Yeah, I would say so. In in, in engine MRO, absolutely. I think. Um, so I think with Rolls-Royce, um, yeah, you're right that Rolls um, basically had historically has enjoyed a very high share of the aftermarket through its um, total care programs. And Rolls has uh, locked up customers at point of sale for uh, long-term 10, 15 years or more uh, total care contracts, you know, cost per hour contracts. And they have not really allowed much in the way of competition. However, that is starting to change. Um, Rolls-Royce recently authorized um, Delta Airlines to be an independent service center in North America. I should say Delta Tech Ops. Mm-hmm. Um, they are pursuing several other joint ventures. Basically, Rolls-Royce is having to respond to a, um, a sense that the value of their engines is harmed. The residual value of their engines is harmed by lack of competition in the aftermarket. In other words, if I have an older Rolls-Royce engine, let's say it's a 10 or 15-year-old engine, um, 
I don't really have many choices in terms of where I can go to get it overhauled. That means I go back to the OEM, and typically the work scopes and the bill invoices are extremely large. So what that has done is it has served to push down the value of their engines mm-hmm. uh, you know, later in their life. So Rolls has had to respond to that. So they're opening up their network, and they're also coming out with new value propositions where they will actually install uh, used and serviceable material, uh, you know, their own parts that have, you know, from other engines uh, in the overhauls, and they will be a lot more flexible on the work scope to drive the price down. So Rolls is actually, the pendulum swinging the other way, and they're opening up. Now, GE has always really embraced kind of an open network, at least that's what they say, and they probably control 40 to 45% of the overhauls on their engines. But what they tend to do is they have a, a series of partners that are licensed or authorized service centers. So they do compete with GE, but GE also has some uh, conditions under which they get this authorization. In other mm-hmm. words, maybe you don't use PMA parts, PMA being an alternative to OEM new. And I don't see GE necessarily taking over more of that. And then you have Pratt Whitney, who is really uh, making a comeback into the uh, commercial or transport business. And they, um, with the geared turbo fan, have been very successful at signing up customers, you know, for um, for long-term maintenance agreements. But they've also brought in competition as well along with that. So I guess the bottom line is that, is there room for independence? I think there is. But it's uh, but it's it's going to be larger independents that have the scale and mass to partner with the OEMs or be or or to be authorized service centers, and it will also be the kind of the airline affiliated MRO organizations, organizations like Delta Tech Ops and Lufthansa Technic and Air France KLM that are very very accomplished in engine maintenance and can use the leverage of the parent airline to back them and to make sure that they get the ability to overhaul the next engine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but it, you know, so yeah, I was talking to Russ Ford a couple of weeks ago down in Florida, I think in MRO, and he was talking about how they built their backlog of engine MRO to programs to, I think, $24 billion is the number that sticks on the top of my head. He's taken on some Rolls-Royce programs. A lot of GE offload, you know, they've got a great partnership with uh, with GE, and then their, their BizAV side of the house um they're doing they're doing a lot of things right who else is is there who you know you've obviously talked about you know delta tech ops and lufthansa are there some little guys that are out there doing it you know really well in engine maintenance or engine maintenance maintenance, engine maintenance overhaul you know in general who are the companies that are really doing a you know who are doing it right well i think one company that's made a big move is standard arrow and Standard Aero was a uh, has gone through a, a number of ownership changes in recent years, but its roots are really in Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba. And at one time, they were a uh, very accomplished uh, supplier of small engine overhaul that was pretty tiny back in the early 90s. They were a client back in those days. They were doing uh, engine overhaul on PT6s and, and the like. And they kept growing, and they were acquired by uh, uh, Dubai Aerospace at one point. And they were, uh, I think, just sold. And they're now doing CFM56 overhauls, and they're moving aggressively into engine accessory overhaul. And they're uh, they're an outstanding organization. They also do T56 overhaul, which is on mm-hmm. uh, C130s as well and they've really branched out and become global they've done a great job with it yeah no it's russ has done they've they have done a, a terrific job capturing more of that market they just you know announced some big uh some big programs i think on the military on the t56 side of the house down in san antonio and i think uh some others on the uh on the rolls royce side of the house so it's been it's been fun kind of fun Watching them grow, what do the yeah? You know, what do you think of the yeah? You know, what do you think of the little guys need to do? I mean, uh, yeah, you you've got your 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 small companies like you know, you know GA Telesis and uh, some of these other companies that are kind of smaller mid market. Um, you see Turbinero, you know, little you know hundred million dollar shop out in Arizona, 
um, you know, rising a little bit. What do they do? They just need to be more nimble. Do they need to go by IP? Do they need to um, partner with folks? What What do they need to do to to succeed? If we're talking um, engine overhaul, um, I think the I think the uh, the small independents have to really. If you think about business strategy, there's there's you know three generic strategies. There's low cost, there's differentiation, and there's focus. And I I think the way the market is evolving now is it is it is really evolving more to focus. Where if you're an independent, you need to really focus on a few engine models and be really really good at them. I mean, the big picture is the capital requirements for engine overhaul are going up, and mm-hmm. that's going to naturally kind of weed down how many suppliers there are in the long run. The big picture is also that airlines have been moving more towards outsourcing and over the last two or three decades. And you do have some airlines doing engine overhaul and investing in it now. But they're, but these are organizations that are typically also performing third-party maintenance. In other words, there aren't really many airlines investing in test cells just for their own engines. Either you make the decision to set up... A, a, a third-party maintenance organization like a Delta Tech Ops or Lufthansa Technic, or you don't invest at all. You don't want to get caught in the middle. So on one hand, airlines are doing less overhaul, I think, uh, than they than they ever have. And that opens up the market for outside suppliers. On the other hand, as you pointed out, OEMs have expanded, and these airline third-party organizations are also doing a lot of work too. So for independents, you really have to focus on the sunset and mature part of the life cycle, and you need to, in, you know, in, compete really on price and agility. And you mentioned GA Telesis, you know, uh, a big use and serviceable, you know, parts supplier that bought the engine shop in Finnair, you know, and has uh, run the engine shop up, shop up there for uh, a number of years. I mean, it, it's that kind of combination that you'll probably need. I've really enjoyed, you know, one thing I love, you know, I've done a lot of work with uh, the smaller engine leasing companies, the, the aftermarket traders, you know, they've, they've, a lot of them have really done well. And, you know, but for you know, five, six years, I keep hearing people are, you know, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing, they're throwing money at crazy valuations. And, you know, next thing you know, it's, you know, somebody's paying more for an engine that, you know, a million more for an engine that they would have paid for last year. Is that whole industry just ripe? Is it is it uh, you know is it really that active that people are looking for you know, you know mid market air you know, mid life aircraft to to put back out on lease you know, mid market engine you know, mid life engines that they can either put on lease or tear down for parts and you know, where's that whole where's that whole market going? Well, there's been a really uh, a profound change in, in what we now call the. Uh, USM or used and serviceable material segment. At one time, we're also called surplus parts, you know. And uh, but uh, I actually have some history uh, in this segment too. And my actually my first consulting engagement uh, was in 1991, where I helped uh, an engine OEM understand how why people bought uh, parts from junkies. <laughs> <laughs> in area in area code three hundred five, <laughs> right, which is South Florida. So, why are people buying parts from these junkies? That was the client's question, and so I ended up um, me and the the team I was part of, and we ended up interviewing a lot of these entrepreneurs that started these companies. And you find out that there's just amazing stories where people mortgage their house to buy a turbine wheel. And that you know begets a, a a good trade, and then that allows them to buy more inventory and so forth. So back in the day, in the '90s, these parts traders most uh, acquired most of their inventory from the excess inventory that airlines held. In other words, airlines were really pretty bad at over provisioning, buying too much inventory, utilizing inventory. So the parts traders would come along and say, you know what? Um, I'll, I'll buy some of this inventory from you. That's where they got their supply. You know, and, and companies like AAR, who's been around 50 years doing this, that's what Iraq and his team did, you know, historically. And there were other companies around, aviation sales, which no longer exists, 
uh, Aegis, which is exists in a different form today. Those were the big players back in the early to mid-90s. Uh, but then it changed. The first big change was that the engine OEMs decided to get in the business. So instead of viewing surplus parts as competition, they decide that, hey, I can offer this alternative to my customers alongside new parts, you know, and maybe I get a brand premium. So you saw um, yeah, GE acquire a couple surplus dealers. Obviously, they have GCAS. They bought the Memphis Group and others. You saw Pratt & Whitney buy a company called Dallas Aerospace in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, the engine companies are in the business, and they're becoming big and active players. But the bigger change, arguably the most fundamental change, came in uh, about 10 years ago when the world's lessors of aircraft and engines began to view use and serviceable parts trading as a, uh, a business that was aligned and could be synergistic with their core leasing business. Why is that? Well, if you have a, let's say, a 12-year-old A320, you're leasing it out to someone. The first lease runs out, you come up to the second lease. It's hard to lease a 12-year-old A320, or you might not get the right price for it. What if you have the option of parting it out, if that's a higher net present value, rather than just strictly sticking to leasing? Um, And increasingly, lessors viewed this as a second avenue, as a second Mm -hmm. distribution channel for their products. So they got involved in the game. You saw, you know, ILFC, uh, you know, purchase AeroTurbine and other transactions take place. Now the lessors get into the parts trading business. And suddenly now the parts trading business is no longer capital constrained. There's plenty of cash to pursue part outs. Right. At the, and what happened along with this is that the so- source of inventory for parts trading came from aircraft part outs, not from buying excess inventory from airlines. So back in the early 90s, maybe 80% of the inventory came from excess inventory from airlines, right off their warehouses, right off their shelves. These days, 90% or more of the inventory comes from aircraft part outs. Mm-hmm. So, so you have big players now with deep pockets pursuing aircraft part outs, and they can pursue younger and younger aircraft. Yeah, it blows me away. I, I, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they're parting out a, an Embraer E-Jet, you know, maybe a 10-year-old airplane. And the number they were going to get for that part out, you know, yeah, we got one buyer for the engine, we'll part out the other engine, then we'll just tear down the airplane, sell the parts off. It was staggering to me that a 10-year-old airplane was, you know, which is really you know, about midlife, was much more valuable in pieces than, you know, than it was as a flyer. And the quote was, yeah, it's like stealing cars. It's great. You know, and these guys are having, these guys are just, you know, they've got private equity money, investors, and, and uh, it's it's been a fascinating business to watch for the last 10 years. I, I, I take it it only grows from here. Well, it only grows, but, but, there, but there are, um, you know, we live in a day and age of 24-7 media, so there have been some anecdotes of you know, uh, you know, really young A three eighteens getting parted out, and, and uh, you know, the question is, is our aircraft getting parted out at younger ages? The answer is actually yes and no. I mean, there was a period where the part out age of twin aisles, in particular, came down, and it and it dropped from something like thirty years to twenty six years, the average retirement age. Mm-hmm. Single aisle stayed pretty steady. Um, and, uh, but it hasn't really come down from there. And if anything, it's creeping back up for the larger jets. Why? Because air travel demand is on fire globally, 7% growth. Um, the cost of capital is creeping up and it's starting to make sense to keep those older aircraft around longer. And that the, even the RJs, which, you know, first we saw a wave of CRJ part outs and then we saw the ERJs start getting parted out. And we, so we are seeing some 10 years, you know, here and there, but we're also starting to pull CRJs out of the desert. Um, as for example, United starts beefing up its, its hubs. So, um, so we're going to, so there are mixed, uh, there are mixed currents here. So I'd say overall, I don't think the average retirement age is falling. 
I think it's staying steady or actually creeping up. And what that means is that today, the price paid for part outs is increasing. It is rising. And uh, a lot of the old timers that have been around this industry for a few cycles, some of them look at the prices being paid for part outs and say, I can't make my money on this. And they're mm-hmm. not pursuing the deals. Yep. Yeah, and that's what that, that's been a common theme. Last couple of years, it, I've heard that you know over and over. I can't believe what people are willing to pay for this asset. And then they buy it, and then I hear the the same thing another couple months later. And you know, uh, yeah, hey, look, it's you know, it's it's the people that are in it, and they've obviously got their models and their spreadsheets, and they know what they're willing to pay. And there's got to be some discipline there. Otherwise, the big thing is engines. Yeah, the big thing is engines. If you can, eighty to eighty-five percent of these part outs is in the engine. The value. So if you look at an aircraft, if you have a good sense of what the engines are worth or even a customer lined up, that can really de-risk the deal where you can do the deal, flip the engines, and then, you know, you have the rest of the aircraft, all the systems, components, everything else, you know, to make up the rest. And uh, that's really the way the game is played. So you've got to look, you know, the engines are the key to it. And if you know what you're doing in engines and you have a ready customer or good sense that you can sell them, that can really de-risk the deal. And now suddenly, you know, you, you flip the engines and you have 15% of what you paid, you know, with a yeah. lot of really good components left to trade. No doubt. Hey, back in, uh, back in November, I'm going to change the topic on you here. Back in, uh, back in November, December timeframe, you wrote a great piece talking about activist investors. And how they're shaping the industry. Um, yeah. What's Wall Street's expectations? How are the activists affecting the the industry? And you know, what do you think Wall Street's expectations are? Is there enough meat on the bone in the industry from a, from an ROI to keep Wall Street happy? Well, I think the um, yeah the activist investor uh, phenomenon, uh, which I've sort of been watching and writing about for a number of years now. Um, It's having several very interesting uh, effects on aerospace as well as most other industries. You know, say, you know, number one is conglomerates are out of favor. And uh, if you're a conglomerate today, you have to be able to justify it to the activist investors or else you could be a target. So, um, so it's a re- it's a real sea change, I think, from the days where you know Jack Welch, the rock star CEO, the conglomerate, you know, the, the Siemens, the UTCs, and so forth. Now, if you're if you have unrelated businesses, you've got to prove that there's value in running those businesses. And uh, so, we may well see in the next year, Craig. I mean, we could uh, we could see. United Technologies break up. We could see GE break up. We could see Rolls Royce break up. Uh, <clears throat> we also know that Honeywell came under, uh, you know, the focus of activist investors. And they were really pushing Honeywell to separate Honeywell Aerospace from the other parts of Honeywell, which includes the uh, you know automotive parts and the HVAC building controls, that sort of stuff. In the end, Honeywell ended up spinning off some other assets and keeping aerospace. But now there's a lot of speculation that uh, UTC could, with uh, you know the former you know the former business known as Carrier and Otis Elevators, mm-hmm. does that make sense with aerospace? Does it make sense to keep all those together? Uh, GE uh, is probably the most famous case right now. Even Rolls Royce, which uh, diversified uh, a number of years ago from aero to oil and gas and energy and maritime. Uh, you know, has been really under scrutiny uh, for the last several years when it came out that they were interested in pursuing a company called Wurzilla, which makes diesel engines for ships. Mm-hmm. Well, Rolls-Royce's bet on Maritime was at the exact wrong time. It's been yep. a horrible time to be in that business. So they're asking, well, why are we paying for uh, these? Why are we paying for a company that's in these uh, different businesses that don't really have a lot of synergy? Yep. So I think that's one. Now, the second uh, area, the way that activist investors are affecting the industry, it, which is different but, but, but important, is that they don't like business jet fleets. 
they uh, they view uh, not every activist investor, but I would say that many activist investors and some institutional investors look at companies with large Part 91, you know, corporate fleets, and that could be a flag or a warning sign of a fat company. Now, this is this is not. I'm not saying this is correct. I'm saying this is a perception. Mm-hmm. But I think, but I think that you're now corporations are under pressure to justify their their flight departments, publicly traded corporations. Sure. And I think that's been a real headwind for business aviation. And I think it's one of the reasons why we haven't seen uh, a real recovery of the small and medium jet segment since the Great Recession of 0809. And, I, and there isn't a lot of study behind this. Uh, there's a lot of anecdote. I think it requires a lot more focus. But, Craig, I think the way I look at small and medium-sized jets is that they're productivity tools, typically owned by corporations, whereas the ultra-large business jets, you know, which I call you know, the Luxo barges, mm-hmm. um, those tend to be more owned by ultra-high net wealth individuals. Right. And, you know, that may not be part of a corporation. You know, it's it's an ultra high net wealth individual. So the dynamics are somewhat different on that. So activist investors are a headwind for part 91 flight departments. And in the end, what could happen is I think you're going to see more of the fleet being pushed to charters. In other words, we're going to go to smaller fleets inside of corporations, Fortune 500 corporations, and we're going to see greater use of charters, branded charters, and fractional ownership. Yeah, I agree. I thought, you know, quite frankly, during the Great Recession, fractional ownership was kind of a dying breed. I thought it was a dying animal. Yep. And my my thought on that has come around 180 degrees. And I think that was, you know, when 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 GE got rid of the flight department, it was a, it, it's a whole new day. In part it was that just changed the that game was. totally, and it was a shot over everybody's bow. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? Seminal um, event. I mean, seminal event alongside the the big three going to DC. You know, ten years ago, two two of the three big three shut down their flight departments. I'm in. I'm in the, I fly out of Detroit, and uh, you know, driving to the airport. Every day, you know, every time I drive to the airport, which is once or twice a week, uh, I pass a building that used to be the GM flight department. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the field is what used to be the Ford flight department. I mean, it yep. is, so it was those two and then GE doing it. And I totally agree with you. That is a seminal, seminal moment when GE shuts his flight department down. Absolutely. So, you know, so now we're talking about GE, um, you know, you think about the basket case of the Dow. It's GE and, and how it got here. Look, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm just, you know, whatever. It, 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 the company has reached a point where a lot of folks in the world, especially on Wall Street, are shaking their head going, what happened? You know, are we is a breakup of GE inevitable? Do we see GCAS being spun off to other leasing companies in parts? Do we see GE engines being broken off as its own individual company? Um, is it yeah? Is it likely? Is it unlikely? What do you yeah? What do you think? So so you're saying not just your your question is not just about GE overall, but specifically with GE Aviation and GCAS. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you've got GE, you've you got you know yeah. twenty different divisions of GE, but on the aerospace side of the house, you know, GCAS has been a major player. Yeah, and GE and GE Aviation, you know, GE Engines, obviously has been you know the premier player. Well, what I would say there is, uh, I'd say the GCAS is a possibility, but I. Um, I'm not an expert on aircraft leasing, so I uh, I will so I'm going to kind of pass on that one. But I I think one of the interesting questions um, is GE also is, is an avionics, uh, courtesy of their acquisition of Smiths um, more than a decade ago, and mm-hmm. uh, that division makes um, the Common Core, which is kind of a centralized computing and, and 
uh, network, uh, almost like a local area network on uh, a lot of the new generation aircraft. They make flight management systems. They make military avionics and so forth. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, I think that there's certainly a possibility that that division gets spun off uh, at some point. Um, you know, the synergy between avionics and engines just hasn't worked out for them. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a good division, but, uh, that, that's certainly a possibility as we look at rearranging all of the cards, you know, out here in the uh, supply chain. And, uh, so we'll see. So I do think it's, it's, there's a real possibility that you'll see some, some spinning out of things, but at the same time, you know, GE has been, at the same time has been engaging in some very savvy joint ventures to expand out to engine accessories. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have, uh, they've used their additive manufacturing technology to enter a joint venture with Parker, uh, to make fuel nozzles. They just completed a joint venture with Woodward, on uh, engine accessories. I think just earlier this week, they announced an equity investment in a company called Avionica. Mm-hmm. which captures data and health management data. So GE, uh, I think, is redefining what its core is. And I think it will. It always has done that and will continue to do it. And that core could mean that it doesn't include avionics or leasing in the future. But time will tell on that. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. I mean... Um Look, GE's been, you know, they're, you know, as as many great companies do, they have peaks and then they have valleys, and I'm sure they'll come out of this one. You know, a lot of smart people at, at GE. I mean, lots of smart people at GE, and I'm sure they'll come out of this valley, um, you know, in in a good in a good way. But uh, you keeping much eye on the uh, the geo uh, the geopolitical side of the house? Do you, you know, with your with your clients? What do you, you know, China obviously, uh, you. Know, China trying to to grow more um, homegrown industries, including aviation. You've got some, uh, you know, continual turmoil in the Mideast. How's the geopolitical situation? Fuel? Fuel price is going to stay stable? Oh, there's so much geopolitical activity. It's it's really hard to keep track. Um, And it's happening on all fronts right now. And, And a lot of it is instigated by the U.S., uh, which is a switch, um, but it is. And um, so where do we begin? I mean, we uh, let's talk tariffs. Um, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, announced tariffs on aluminum and steel uh, back in March, and uh, aluminum, uh, 10% tariffs on aluminum, 25% on steel. And... Uh, uh, there were some exceptions made for Canada and Mexico on those tariffs, but it turns out that aircraft use a lot of steel and a lot of aluminum. <laughs> yep. In fact, and it turns out, you know, there's about $4 billion of aluminum consumed per year in the global aerospace industry. And there's probably about a billion and a half, billion, billion and a half of steel. So these tariffs, it turns out the U.S. imports a lot of its steel the tariffs are not only on what's called mill products, meaning ingot, uh, plate, sheet. It's also on things like extrusions, castings, uh, uh, forgings, tube. Mm. So it's other things. And so a lot of that is, a lot of the steel is imported for the U.S. supply chain. Most of the aluminum is produced in the U.S. and U.S. mills, so that's not as big of an impact. So that went down in March. And it's not clear who is going to eat that cost. But I know one thing, the airlines aren't going to eat it because they will not accept higher prices. Right. So the supply chain is going to have to eat it somewhere. Uh, But what is even more significant than that, and actually my next column for Aviation Week is going to focus on this, is sanctions. And so in April, the U.S. announced sanctions on Russia And the way they did it is they targeted oligarchs. And um, one of the oligarchs that they basically put the sanction on uh, happens to own, um, he happens to be the CEO and largest shareholder of Rusal. And his name is Oleg uh, Deripaska. 
Okay. And he's the CEO and largest shareholder of Rusal. Now, you may say, well, where is this going? Well, it turns out because Rusal is a world's second aluminum producer, that means effectively they can no longer sell to the U.S. And it turns out that the base aluminum that they sell ends up going into the into the uh, aluminum alloys the, that we use in aircraft today. So long story short, the price of aluminum went up 10% as a result of these sanctions. And it, uh, it was uh, pretty pronounced, the effect, uh, even on the global aluminum markets. And the U.S. has since backed away a little bit from the sanctions and said, okay, you have six months until you until this is implemented but in essence the u.s is deciding who can be the ceo of a russian company yep. or they're not going to sell to the u.s so um so now you're at the same time demand for aluminum is galloping along we have we continue to ramp up an arrow defense spending now has been unleashed automotive is is you know is, is strong the global economy is strong so you have very robust demand for raw materials and now you have tremendous uncertainty in the supply and the aluminum mills are now uh, are now uh, engaging in a practice called price and effect which means that they can't guarantee you a price if you are a machine shop and you order aluminum which is your staple Let's say for delivery to your customer in four months, and that aluminum is going to be delivered in, say, two months, they can't guarantee you what the price will be. So you have to take the risk mm -hmm. on what the price of aluminum will be. And that puts another burden on the small shops. Now, these are tough enough, but the next thing is that the Russians are now contemplating banning titanium exports to the U.S. Now, this is most likely saber-rattling. And uh, but you know, and it, it the damages on both sides would be profound. But this is a nuclear option for Russia. In other words, could Vladimir Putin shut down the seven eight seven production line? And uh, you know, U.S. Uh, customers I hear have been quietly stockpiling titanium and uh, you know preparing for contingencies if things go wrong. And I'm not proposing that, suggesting that this is going to happen. But I'm saying that Russia just put this on the table publicly, right? And uh, and it's it's out there. So the bottom line is there's tremendous uncertainty in the raw material world. So why we're all focused on, hey, how do we get to 60 single aisles a month? Oh, what about the sanction? What about the tariffs from China and so forth? I mean, on the other end of the supply chain could be the biggest risk of all, and yep. we're not we're not paying attention to it right now, or it's not being written about much. It really, it, you know, you, you, I'm an economics, you know, I studied economics in college. That was my, my major. And, and you really think about what a integrated world it is. And there's no, you know, it, it, you just can't, you know, you can't, you can't make a unilateral action. Nobody's got that kind of power anymore. And, you know, hey, hey I drive an F-150, um, you know, all aluminum and, um, you know, I know Ford's got some, uh, you know, some long-term agreements in place there, but, you know, effectively now, if everybody's going to the spot market, um, it's going to get ugly, uh, pretty quick. But, uh, yeah, yeah, the worry, the worry is that we could go to allocation where there's this, in essence, uh, the mills give you a quota of how much you can buy. <laughs> well, <laughs> quotas don't work well when you're trying to, you know, push to 60 single aisles a month and, and Boeing and Airbus are now studying 70 or 70 plus. And so this is very, very much at odds with that. So that's that's one area where geopolitics is biting. Uh, the other is is that these tariffs, you know, China announces their retaliation. There's a separate round of tariffs on China. They announce their retaliation, which includes tariffs on aircraft between 15 and 45,000 kilograms operating empty weight, which reaches up to the to the max seven, the 737 max seven, but not the max eight. I think that is their announcement. It isn't into effect yet, but it has an impact on business jets, um, and it has an impact on regional aircraft as well. So that that's happening, and we'll see if that sticks uh, or not.
And then, of course, you have oil prices. Oh, you have the Iranian sanctions, uh, which is 48 hours, 24 hours ago. Uh, and that's the loss of, what, a $20 billion sale to Iran. Right. And uh, I haven't looked at what oil prices have done today or yesterday. It may have been priced into the market. But nonetheless, this, this robust growth in the global economy now is now starting to burn up some of that excess that came from U.S. frackers, from the shale, right. tight oil that came from the shale producers. And supply and demand are now sort of coming in line, and we're in what the economists call this kind of the $70 a barrel sweet spot, which is actually kind of a good place for, you know, it's, it depends on where you sit in the supply chain and what your economic interests are. But well, a lot of global economists feel that this is kind of a good price point where it's not too low and it's not too high. But we'll yep. see. Yeah, no, hey, look, it's uh, oil at 60 or 70 bucks a barrel for the world is not a bad, is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah, for Joe Sixpack driving his F-150 at $29 a barrel, it was great. Um, but it was bad for a lot of people. Um, yeah. For the global economy, 60 or 70 bucks a, a barrel is not bad. But, you know, it, it'll be, it's, it's going to be fun to watch the uh, the geopolitical side of the house the next uh the next six to twelve months, for sure. Um, see how it all how it all shakes out. Hey, look, we're kind of coming up on. I promised you we'd keep it under an hour, and um, so I'll just. What do you? What's next? What's the next big? What's the next big thing in aerospace? You know, is it the is it the is it Boeing's new middle market aircraft? Is it uh, something different? What's the? Uh, you know, where do you think we're heading? Well, I think the next big program will be will be the uh, middle of the market aircraft. I think. Boeing has to do it. And I think when Boeing does this, it's really their chance to effectively reset the rules for uh, for the role of suppliers and aircraft OEMs on a program. I think that's where you're going to see Boeing really uh, capturing more of the services revenue and writing the rules for being on the aircraft in a way that enables them to do so. I think that's one. I think you're going to see more vertical integration by the aircraft OEMs. I've written about this and talked about it pretty extensively, but I think you're going to see aircraft OEMs getting more involved in uh, in more aircraft systems in a way that will impinge and overlap on suppliers. That's going to shake things up a little bit, I think. So I think that's going to be uh, something to watch. I think we're going to probably have a decent business aviation recovery as oil prices creep up, that should be very good for the rotary wing segment, which has been pummeled uh, by the falling oil prices. Mm-hmm. It's a very good time right now, uh, you know, on the demand side. And so it's so paradoxical right now is the demand side, global economy is strong. Demand for aircraft is strong. Demand for jet transports is fantastic. And yet we have tremendous uncertainty on the geopolitical side. Most of it instigated by the United States of America. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. I never Trump. thought I would say that. I never <laughs> thought I would say that, but it is. So here we are. <laughs> here we are. We guess we'll have to see what happens. So, hey, Kevin, thanks for uh, thanks for being here so much today. Um, hey, how do people? Uh, if people want your want to want your services, how do they uh, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, you can you can find me on our website at aerodynamicadvisory.com. Perfect. And your email. Michaels at aerodynamicadvisory.com? That's correct. Perfect. Thank you very kindly for being here. I'd love to have you back. Let's uh, let's see how the, the the political situation shakes out, and let's have you back on, and we'll uh, we'll probably we'll we'll talk about it some more. How's that sound? Okay, great. Thanks, Thank Kevin. You.